You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello everyone, welcome to people who haven't been with us for a festival events earlier in the week. Uh, I'm Eve Patton, I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub and I've been so <coughs> looking forward to this afternoon's conversation. Really, uh, I suppose an excuse to get Eva Sagara back into the Hub to talk to us again because uh, she's been with us for a few events recently uh, and it's been terrific. Uh, at the festival, which has been running since Monday, I think we've heard about all kinds of languages from uh, ancient Sumerian and Aramaic uh, through to international sign language. But this afternoon, we're coming to German. Uh, and German, both as a language in its own right, and I think as a kind of window onto a history. Uh, last year, I read Eva Segara's wonderful book, Living With My Century, uh, about her life uh, as a young student who decided to study German and who went on to be one of the leading figures in the administration of Trinity College Dublin, as well, of course, uh, as uh, our professor of German. But I think what comes across from the book, and I hope we'll hear a bit more about this, is how the studying of German as a language became a portal for Eda onto a Europe that was in various stages of conflict and recovery throughout the period of her own life. Uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. So what we thought we would do for the festival conversation this year is to put her alongside our current professor of German, Jürgen Barkov, who will be known, I think, to everybody here, uh, not only, indeed, as our current uh, chair of German, but also having worn various different hats himself in leading the university, including that of Vice Provost, and much more important, Director of the Trinity Longman Hub, sometime before me. So for the next uh, short period of time, we're going to have the two of them in conversation, and also in conversation with you, because we hope that uh, Jürgen will, will open the, the discussion to questions or comments or thoughts from you about uh, this subject. So, Jürgen, uh, Ida, you're both very welcome. Thank you for joining the festival. It's all yours. Thank, thank you very you. much, Eve. So, thank you very much for having us. It's really a great pleasure for me and a great honour this afternoon to have the opportunity to talk to Ida, with Ida, uh, with in front of you. Ida is one of the best known, most influential and most loved members of the college community over many decades. Retired professor of German, uh, as, as Eve was already saying, first woman in that role, first female college officer, that means member uh, in the sense of top member, member of the top management in the long, long history of our university, former pro-chancellor of the university. Ida has been a role model and a mentor for generations of colleagues and students. She certainly has been a mentor for me in both of those roles. I had the immense privilege of being a student of Ida uh, when I was a visiting student in the early 80s, then to have her as my boss in the 80s and 90s, and now, uh, of course, to be her successor. We celebrated a round birthday uh, of Ida this summer, uh, um, in, in the dining hall uh, in the context of uh, the annual meeting of our subject association for the UK and Ireland. And as already mentioned last year, Ida published her biography, Living with My Century. 
The title of our conversation is What Has Changed Gender Academia Europe? And that gives an, uh, an, an, an indication of the range of, 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 of things we want to talk about, the range of the important topics. There are many more that you cover in your book, Ida. Before uh, I, I, I start to ask questions or before we start our conversation, I just want to give you sort of a, some, some, some brief uh, indication of the things Ida has done, the things she has been involved in, the enormous uh, uh, influence and achievements that she had on the university, on our subject, and on uh, academia and on Ireland more generally. So Ida uh, was a student at UCD and studied history and German, graduating in 1954. At the time this was actually not a combination that you could study, uh, so she had effectively to get special permission to do these two subjects and did two degrees at the same time. Afterwards, Ida very much wanted, uh, leaning more towards history than to German, Ida wanted to sort of pursue an academe, uh, a career in academia as a historian and was told in no uncertain terms by one of her prof male professors that this was not, uh, that she would never, as a woman, she would never get a lecturing job in history, but in languages they would take women. <laughs> So what did Ida do? She pursued uh, postgraduate studies in Freiburg, Vien uh, uh, Zurich and Vienna, um, uh, getting a PhD from Vienna, um, and, um, uh, but then combining the study of literature and history by looking at the way social history, history uh, informs uh, and, uh, how literature is written and produced and distributed and read. So with that, as a scholar, she became one of the founding members of, of what has become Sozialgeschichte der Literatur, social history of literature, one of the most influential uh, methodologies uh, and innovations of the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, after her PhD, Ida emigrated to the UK and became a lecturer in Manchester for 16 years, so joining so many of her generation that had to move abroad, had to move to the island in the east to, to sort of get, uh, get a position. Um, and uh, the way you combined raising a family and, and, and continuing to work uh, we, we hopefully get the chance to talk about this because it's hair-raising from today's <laughs> perspective, uh, the conditions under which, uh, under which you did this. Ida's first book, Tradition and Revolution, German Literature and Society, 1971, um, was immediately pub uh, translated into German, which was very rare at the time, and came out as a paperback. So when I came here to study, I came partly to Trinity because Ida was so famous in Germany. Many weight, uh, four weighty and influential monographs on German literature followed. Ida was appointed to the chair of German as the first woman in that role uh, starting in, uh, in 1975, and she held that chair until 1998. Uh, together with some other absolutely remarkable women, the late Barbara Wright in French and Corinna Lonergan in Italian, who you see around campus a lot. She absolutely revolutionized and transformed modern languages. I mean, you did it for German, the, um, your colleagues did it for French and, 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 and Italian. Together with other, uh, others, you developed a raft of new degree courses, some of which are still attracting the best students in the country, like European Studies, Law and German, Business Studies and German. Ida was the first college officer in the history of the college. I mentioned that in 1979, becoming Dean for International Students, and in 1981, Registrar of the College and the University. Uh, the, uh, um, um, 
Eve referred to your activities in Europe. Um, it was very involved in getting Erasmus going and its predecessor, the Joint Study Program, um, established countless exchange programs uh, with German and Austrian universities, but also encouraged across college the establishment of research links, of exchange links, that really transformed uh, the internationalization of the university. Ida sat in evaluation committees in Strasbourg for the, for the European Science Foundation and many others. As Secretary of the Royal Irish Academy from 1993 to 1998, again the first woman in that role, Ida lobbied intensely for the establishment of an Irish Research Council. There was no governmental research funding at the time at all in Ireland for the humanities except for Irish language and archaeology. Uh, the year Ida retired, the Irish Research Council for the Humanities and Social Sciences was set up and Ida became the first chair of that for five years after retirement, as well as then being a pro-chancellor uh, of the university, working with Mary Robinson and the other pro-chancellors in that capacity. So that's just sort of a flavor, and I could go on and go on, but we don't, you don't want to hear from me, me, you want to hear from Ida. So may I just ask, we, 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 you suggested we call this talk, What Has Changed? So let me begin with that. What, what has changed? What in your lifetime has been the biggest change in your mind? Well, for Ireland, quite, <coughs> quite clearly, the biggest change was the possibility of change. Because when I was young and incredibly old, I'm the fourth generation, and that's why I'm so pleased to see people belonging to the fourth generation here. <coughs> um, when I was young, Ireland uh, was, it was uh, the south of Ireland, the, uh, what were we? We were the Free State, and then we were the Republic. Um, so in the, in the 40s, and, and certainly into the 50s, uh, you just you had to get around things. You, you felt it was never going to change, and people wondered why we didn't protest. But it didn't dawn us, because we felt, well, that's how it was. And that was, the, for me, the most important thing, because um, it's been extraordinary ever since, and it's been accelerating. And the second thing that struck me, but not as important, is the uh, role of the state in our lives. When we were young, the state was a nuisance. The only thing the state did in my consciousness was to send us communications in Irish and then put in English, place a tuppenny halfpenny stamp here. <laughs> uh, whereas, and we also didn't have any expectations of the state, whereas now people have um, super expectations of the state. And uh, that's different. I don't want to be, quali to be qualitative in my judgment. I just want to say is how certain objective things that have happened, uh, but also how they struck me. So I'm not speaking ex cathedra. That's your job. <laughs> but uh, telling us, you know, how I thought and felt. So if, if, if the possibility of change has been the biggest change, what, what do you think has brought about the fact that now change is not only accepted, but such, a, such a, an important and constant feature of, of, of life in Ireland? The most important minister, I think, in my lifetime was Don O'Malley who in 19, was it 65 or 66, brought in so-called free secondary education. <clears throat> and not only uh, could you not, if you didn't have quite a lot of money, um, you could you not send your children to secondary school, and you had to pay to do it, and people didn't have it. But there were, 20, there were 52 county scholarships 
And if you got a county scholarship, you could go to secondary school. But unfortunately, the most likely people to get that were nuns and priests or nuns and seminarians. So that left very little for the lay folk. So that was, that was hugely important. Uh, I think also um, in the next, uh, the next stage, uh, it was before we, um, I think Frank can probably correct me here, it was before we became a member of the European Economic Community in 73. I think in, uh, during the uh, late 60s, um, the um, Economic and Social Council of the United Nations issued a directive uh, which uh, 20 <coughs> graduates, among them somebody called Hilda Tweedy, a very important person, later on, of course, Seclebert, um, that uh, a commission on women should be set up to examine discrimination because the le legislative position of women was really a disgrace. Yeah, so okay. Those would be two things. Two things. Okay, very good. Well, um, you mentioned the Commission on Women, so, so let's, let's perhaps talk a little bit about the position and role of women. Today, our provost is a woman, our vice provost is a woman, our chancellor is a woman, our faculty dean is a woman, and for many years now, we, uh, our, our big important committees were, uh, are, are sort of gender balanced. Yeah. So when you became the first woman in the history of the college to take a leadership position, I think you say in your book you were all of a sudden chairing a dozen committees at least. Twenty-seven. Actually. Twenty-seven. Yeah, that's that's sort of that's. I think when I was registrar, it was still around that number. Uh, and in most of these committees, and that was different to my time, you were the only woman. That's right. Yeah. But I have to say, I'm a bit, I wasn't a good chairman, so and I I don't use the word chairman. Uh, unreflectively, um, you know, I would otherwise have to say uh, a woe person that I'm a woe person, so I don't, that's why I say chairman. But anyway, um, uh, some of them were, were not very significant ones, but an awful lot of them were. And uh, one of the first things I asked the Provost, because I was a, a king's man and I didn't do things on my own, I said to the Provost, would it be all right to try and um, pack some women onto college committees? And he said, terrific, because the Provost had a great advantage, he had a clever daughter and they're the best feminists. Uh, <coughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah so, so what was it like to be a woman uh, in, in, in a completely male-dominated world? Well, you see, we didn't really think like that. I came from a court matriarchy on my mother's side. Uh, we always knew we were superior, but we didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, we, we didn't think... Uh, that's the, the difference between then and now. So, I mean... I remember saying to Katarasmo, who was a dean, and he was always smoking, and I hated smoke. And so I said, Kata, would you ever not smoke? I have every right to smoke, and you can't do anything about it. So uh, I just thought, well, I'd have to just live with it. That's how I, I, it may have been me, but there, no, there were certainly um, from '68, thanks to the um, the student and workers' movement in France, and then his Ireland, belatedly. I think even more effectively in UCD than Trinity, though, though there were some very formidable Trinity people that maybe Tim Jackson can remember. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think it took me quite a while uh, because I tried to get in sort of sideways rather than I'm no good at confrontation. And I don't think it works anyway. I suppose one of the things I've learnt, and I don't know that I knew it then, was that you learn an awful lot more by listening than talking. I mean, I'm not going to practice that today. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned 1968. I mean, yeah. there, um, um, 
1968 was the year when the first uh, women were elected uh, as fellows of Trinity yes. College, mm -hmm. and uh, and Barbara Wright, whom I already mentioned, and were the dean were one of them. Jocelyn uh, Otway Riven. Oh yeah, the Jocelyn Otway Riven, and you you write a lot about about the other women that worked with you uh, yes, in yes. college in those years. Uh, can you say a little bit how 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 sort of the the, 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 that worked. Well, it didn't. It helped them socially and it helped them psychologically, but it didn't help them an awful lot initially in their careers. But I think um, what struck me uh, as most problematic, and it affected my first person to think about it, was Terence Brown, not another woman. It was if you weren't on the prom senior promotions committee, uh, women weren't on the whole put forward. And the other, other trouble about the Senior Promotions Committee was that it was always, uh, the list was always compiled by the head of department. So if you had a head of department who was not particularly gender friendly, uh, uh, or even gender neutral, your name didn't get forward or for, uh, for fellowship and things like that. So I think that was one of the important things, was to get, and again, uh, Bill Watts was an important figure in, in trying to push that agenda. He, he taught a very vocal wife. <laughs> but I think uh, these things evolve. And I remember saying to some, uh, some of my younger female colleagues, it's going to take a generation. It will happen, but it might even take two generations. And uh, you know the statistics on women professors are, um, now. I know when I last looked, when I wrote this thing, it was about three years statistics, there was something like 28%. Uh, female professors. There were none. I think I was the only full professor. Even Jocelyn Ashby Riven, who was formidable, tremendous woman and dean. She she wasn't the head of her department. She was, of course, the um, professor. She wasn't the Regents professor. So it took an, it took quite a while before this happened. And I remember Anne Cruikshank, who was uh, uh, was one of our leading um, historians uh, of art in Ireland, and I. I think I suggested her, her name for promotion. She was a lecturer, if I'm not wrong. I don't think she was even a senior lecturer. And somebody said, but she just writes art catalogues. And you see, with a lot of scientists there, you see, well, that's, that's what art historians do. But unless somebody's there to say it, uh, these things don't happen. And it's not ill will. It's, as Mark said, you have to be aware before you can change. Okay, um, uh, uh, you mentioned um, not gender-friendly heads of departments. Yeah? Not necessarily gender um, uh, hostile, but yeah, gender well, unaware. But um, going back to your time in Manchester, <laughs> perhaps you can tell us a little bit about about how you how sort of you tried to combine raising Maria, your daughter, <laughs> and and keeping your career going. Well, we were we were two women in the um, department of 14, and one of them was a terrific looking woman, and <coughs> she spent a lot of her time with her, uh, what do you refer to, I suppose partner you'd say now, in Africa, we didn't know about this, we were terribly intrigued when we found out many years later. So she wasn't particularly career oriented, and I wasn't terribly, but the prof said to me at one stage when I had a couple of things published, you know, you are in line for promotion, but you've got a husband to support you, so I'm going to give it to so-and-so. And I think the most interesting thing from a perspective today is that I thought that was the right decision, because we had two incomes, and he'd only one. We'd one child, and they had two. 
So in fairness, but again, it's the change in mentality which comes from a lot of other things. And I think one of the problems today is, you know, what we're talking about is a thing of great complexity. And I'm, I'm one of today. I'm one of these uh, terrible simplificateurs. You know, I'm simplifying things. So take it, don't take it au pied de la lettre. Don't take it too, too, too seriously. I'm sure you won't. But, but, but wasn't it that when you, uh, <laughs> when you wanted to sort of take. Uh, well, you wanted to keep going. You wanted to keep yes. working yes. while you, uh, while, while Maria was a baby. Yes. Yeah. The and the conditions <laughs> under which that was possible. Unbelievable. You see, we we were we had no children, so we wanted to adopt. So we adopted a baby. But I wanted to go part time, obviously. Not only I wanted, but also the law in not the law, but the practice of the courts, in the family courts in Britain, was that the mother shouldn't be in full time work, uh, for an adopted child. And I think that was, you know, good social thinking on their part. So I went to the boss, and I had been there, what was it, 1968. I'd been there 10 years. And he said, yes, you take your, uh, we can certainly allow you to go part-time. We'll take uh, your full load, except administration. You're not very good at it. Um, uh, and you will be given 12.5% of your salary. And I said, what? He said, take it or leave it. And so I took it. And the next thing was, our daughter was, uh, I think she was two and a half months, and he sent his wife to ostensibly to visit me and see the baby. But in actual fact, she came with a mission. And she said, Ida, have you never thought of the importance of being a full-time mother? Are you, are you going to allow your child to have something which other children don't have? But I was toughened up with that. That's where the court court matriarchy came in. That was emotional blackmail, and she, she didn't get away with it. Because he wanted me, actually, he wanted me out. He, he would prefer to be able to appoint a nice young man. Hmm. He wouldn't be a bother. Okay, yeah, well... But this is blatant example, but I have one better example from nearer home. Uh, Angrid Sims, who's uh, now one of our most distinguished historical geographers from UCD, and she married uh, one of our colleagues here and was given a contract post. She had a, um, she had a doctorate and shots exam from Germany. And she was given a, a one-year contract post in UCD, very good, very satisfactory. And then she was never told until uh, mid-September um, whether she would be appointed for a year. But she had to first provide a doctor's certificate that she was not pregnant. <laughs> Unbelievable, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really that, was, that was what, 1970? No, so we still have a long way to go, but we also did come a long way oh, yeah. if, if you hear yeah, these stories. Let's, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about Europe. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. As a, as a as a professor of a modern European language, Eve uh, related it. I mean, you were passionate about strengthening ties, and you did that very successfully for our department, for our discipline, but also for the college and for academia as a as a whole. You really worked very hard to make sure that the EU, the benefits of EU membership, uh, reached yeah. academia in the in the in the 80s in the late 70s in the 80s in the 90s what role when you look back on this what role did Europe did, did, did Europe have in this period in shaping modern Ireland and the way modern Ireland looks at itself i suppose the most important thing and again you can't imagine how inward looking 
and sort of navel gazing Ireland. I mean, not Northern, Northern Ireland was different, but certainly the country in which I grew up in which I was forced to, with 60% of our age cohort to emigrate, uh, lived. It was re uh, Europe, in the general sense, helped us to become outward looking. And uh, then as um, the years went by, there were so many opportunities that whether school, school exchanges had, were already there, but they became much more institutionalized. And there were opportunities. I once traveled to Lithuania on um, the European Commission after the fall of the wall um, asked uh, academics in Western Europe to uh, assess um, applications for staff in, say, the Baltic states, in Poland and Hungary and so on, to come to Western Europe to get experience of, uh, as it were, a non-Soviet uh, education system. So I was travelling to Lithuania, and there were two, uh, two very shy little girls in the, well, not little, um, they were 17, 18, 18-year-olds, in the row with me. And they were terribly nervous and terribly excited. And they were going to Estonia. They were apprentice technicians in Kevin Street. Um, I can't remember. It was something to do with uh, blood testing, but I can't remember exactly. And they said, you know, last year we met two Estonians. I didn't, we'd never heard of Estonia. And now they came and we, we brought them around and we showed them everything. And they invited us when they were going to have their conference to come back. So we're going to Estonia for a week. And that was just at one level. And this, this was multiplied. Now that was at a later stage. But I think um, uh, fairly early on, uh, the so-called joint study programs, which evolved, and I think the person who was pushing it was a Welshman. This was the predecessor to Erasmus in Tempus. And that, uh, that un uh, encouraged both staff and students, but I did find that colleagues in Trinity who were not in modern languages were not interested in taking sabbatical leave in other countries. And I was pushing Germany, but not only. I was, became dean of visiting <coughs> students in 79. So I tried to reorientate as many of our exchange programs as possible away from America, and not because it was anti-American anything, but towards Europe and towards the smaller states. So we organized uh, exchanges, some less successful, with Greece, with Thessalonica, with Denmark, um, Aarhus, with Belgium, with the Netherlands, um, to, uh, uh, to try and uh, give a sort of community of smaller nations, which uh, who might be developing, like Ireland, a small open economy, uh, to get them over 20 years, you know, if you have so many students exchanging, you have so many friendships, you have the families, you have their relations, you have the schools. It's just a small thing. It's like our putting, uh, you know, not drinking from plastic cups anymore. If everybody didn't, it isn't much, but it helps. So I think that was the beginning. Uh, the Erasmus program. Uh, one of the key people in Ireland to promote that was the professor of German in UCD, Hugh, uh, Hugh Ridley. He was on the policy committee, and he really did the work for the Irish Department of Education. Who, um, he was terribly tactful. He, he never uh, did anything but quote how wonderful they were. But it was he who was the, um, and he was terribly, he was terribly uh, effective in that. And I think the Erasmus program is unbelievable. I don't know the statistics. You know them now, but the amount of people who have careers. And, and we find, I'm sure my colleagues who are here, um, we find wherever we go, 
we find our students who've been uh, in places of you know, in Poland and Hungary and everywhere. 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 Uh, one of the most striking statistics is that there are now more than one million Erasmus babies. <laughs> so uh, out of relationships that develop, international relationships that develop, but I mean, it's it's well known that that in generally the Erasmus program is seen as the m the most important thing the Commission ever did to forge a sense of European yes, identity. Yes, yes. Yeah, and of course now Erasmus is broadening out because as long as it's just the universities, it's still quite an elitist yes, undertaking. Yes, and now right. sort of schools and apprenticeships. Yes, very interesting yes. to hear that very yes, early on yes. that was already mm -hmm. a feature. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to um, to, to another topic. We are here in the. Research Institute for the Humanities. Many of the PhD students that are up on the fourth floor hold scholarships of the Irish Research Council. And I think it is fair to say that without you, there would be no Irish Research Council. Certainly, there wouldn't have been the IRC HSS established in 1998. So you lobbied for, for many years together with your friend and colleague Wolfgang Frühwald, who was at the time president of the German Research Foundation, the most powerful and richest research foundation in Europe, the, you lobbied the government for research funding. And, and the, the remarkable thing is, when uh, the IRC HSS was established, it was one of the few examples where a research council for the humanities and social sciences was established before there was anything like that for the STEM subjects. And ERCSAT, then the Irish Research Council for Science, Engineering and Technology, was established on the model of yours. Tell us a little bit how you did that and how you persuaded the government and what difference it made. Well, one of the great things for living long and outliving your contemporaries is that you get the bouquet. I mean, there, were, uh, there was a, a group of us, the um, Professor of History, Nicholas Canning from Galway, Martin O'Mara, who was Professor of Irish here, and two or three others. And oh, we lobbied and we lobbied and we lobbied for 10 years and we got nowhere. And one, one particular day, our beloved president was um, Minister for Arts, Culture and the Gaeltacht. And um, we. Our, our president today. Our president yeah, today, yeah. yes, our, our president of Ireland, the head of the head of um, the head of the state, and he treated us to forty-five minutes on his belief in research, and then he told us we were in the wrong ministry to go somewhere else. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, the key person was the uh, um, was the <coughs> education advisor for Martin um, uh, for Michael Martin. Um, a man called Morris Brick, and he had devised in the mid-90s a programme for uh, having listened to Wolfgang Fruwald address the Royal Irish Academy in a paper in 1995, which I organised on how uh, small countries can fu fund blue skies research. And he did a very, very brilliant short uh, paper, and the minister responsible went off for his coffee before... Um, the distinguished visit visitors' paper, but the civil servants stayed behind, and the civil servants. I noticed a lot of nodding heads, and I think that what provided a blueprint for the coming the opposition. Um, the um, the Fianna Fáil were not in government at the time; they were in opposition. But when the Fianna Fáil government came in, I think '97, as far as I remember, but I might be wrong. Um, they already had this blueprint that if Ireland wanted to modernise, it must um, invest in, in research. Probably STEM research was more on the cards, but uh, 
as the man, the civil servant in charge of the first Anglo-Irish agreement, was it when, 85? Yeah. 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 He's, I was sitting once beside him at a dinner, and he, I said, How, uh, 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 did you study law? He said, God, no. I'd never have managed uh, the role, if I may say, I played in this. I said, what did you study? Oh, he said, medieval and modern English. And, no, medieval and early modern English. <laughs> he said, it teaches you to think. <laughs> Which I thought a nice, a nice um, label for, our, for ourselves. Um, the, uh, when we eventually did get the Research Council, um, we, it was so funny. They agreed to fund us to the tune of a, half a million, which was quite a lot in 19. The provisional, uh, provisional um, uh, um, Research Council was 98 and the permanent one was, nine, was 2000. They gave us a, a half a million, but they didn't give us an office, they didn't give us a secretary. And um, when our tiny office up in the Higher Education Authority headquarters, um, when the boxes of applications came in, and they were very numerous, we learned that one of the new secretaries was a, um, was a Muslim and she needed a prayer room. So our office was cut in half. So now I, at the time, what age was I? I was in my 70s. I was pretty nimble, but you had to climb over boxes to get to the top. And there was always a danger that you'd fall down. I mean, it was extraordinary. We could not, they actually wanted to control us. And the reason why um, the Humanities Research Council got off the ground so much sooner was that the civil servants in Kildare Street were determined to control the um, STEM research, Research Council, which they saw as the key. And they wanted a greenfield site. And um, the former president of Cor uh, the University of Cork, the chairman of the Higher Education Authority, Morris Brick and myself used to meet at breakfast uh, before the meeting of the, um, the Science Foundation Ireland, I'm saying two things, um, to, to uh, give the naive questions that I was to ask and which would uh, direct the discussion of the group. And to some extent it was the same at uh, government level. Um, the civil servants were fighting um, other explicit interests to keep control of the Science Council, so it took a long time to come about. But I think once the government made up its mind to do it, it did it very well. And um, Morris Brick devised six programmes, um, the uh, postgraduate, which in one sense was the most important, the, the doctoral programme, which, are you, are you on that? No? You are, John? No. An awful lot of our students have been on the doctoral programme of the Research Council. It's terrific, all over Ireland. Um, and then there was the uh, sabbatical, paid sabbatical leave. We didn't have sabbatical leave. We just had to work hard if we wanted to allow our colleagues to go on sabbatical. Uh, and then there was the senior fellowships. And much later, much more important in your field, um, the uh, political science and social networks, they came later. But it was so well thought out in advance that it, once it got going, it worked very well, I think. I, I, I remember in the early stages of, the, of that research council that I, I came to the department and you were sitting outside the department 
with hundreds of envelopes uh, <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a table there outside and said, Ida, what are you doing? Oh, I'm notifying the candidates about the outcome of their application. <laughs> so you really, you had to do absolutely, like that, absolutely know, everything, everything, everything yourself. But it's very interesting what you say about the government trying to control it, because this is actually an interesting moment to remember when the, uh, the establishment of the Research Council, because eventually the two merged and became the Irish Research Council, previous director of the Hub, Jane Ullmeyer was, was, was chair of that for, for many years and now they are in the process, the government is in the process of, of, of merging the IRC and SFI and there are great concerns that again this is an exercise in gaining more control. Uh, I don't know whether you have any advice to the policy makers or indeed to us about how to respond to that. Get on to their grandmothers. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a trend, isn't it? And you know, if, if uh, it's like telling us, um, us telling them, um, telling the bin men how to empty bins, you know, uh, it would be nice. But it's a it's a trend. Once the state begins to uh, take control, and you know, it does an awful lot of good by taking, because you don't can't, you can't <coughs> keep charity to the voluntary sector, as we can see. It's terribly helpful, but uh, in the evolution of of society as it is today, you have to have quite a lot of state power. And how you control them, I think um, Edward Lear might be the best person to tell you. <laughs> so, not um, very satisfactory. We, no, no, we, we, it's, no it's, it's, it's very tricky. And I mean, yes. we had ter terrific events. Eve, Eve organized a terrific <laughs> event here uh, about sort of putting the position of, of academia, of the humanities, to the decision makers and to the humanities and to the minister. What comes out of that, I think uh, it's still work in progress. But um, 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 we, I want to open up to, 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 the, to the public very soon. So, so last question from me, really. Looking back over your long life and all the things you've been involved in, what advice would you have today? On the one hand, to young, young women embarking on a career in academia or young people in general, but also for all of us in academia today, as you see it, being still involved, but also being uh, at a remove and, and, and sort of having this long, long uh, uh, active uh, uh, life to, to, to sort of draw from. Uh, enjoy life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, listen to your colleagues and particularly listen to the students. I used to get very annoyed when students criticised what I said. And then I realised, I'm here to get educated. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.